Hello and welcome to the Fortune and Freedom podcast, where Nigel Farage and Nikolai Hubble give you a unique take on what's really going on in the world of finance, investing and politics. We hope you sit back and enjoy this episode. Hello and welcome to this week in review with Nigel Farage. Nigel, do you think there's anything in particular that you want to point out about the COVID inquiry so far? And given all the damage it did economically, also politically, probably, and socially, I think it is worth reviewing what has come out of that. Uh, well, the idea they were following the science is clearly for the birds. Uh, they were all over the place. I mean, like rats fighting in a sack. Um, Cummings, of course, an utterly destructive force. You know, everyone's a moron apart from me. Uh, Lee Kane, the director of communications, politer, but basically Boris couldn't make decisions. You know, he oscillated was the nice word that was used. He crashed around like a supermarket trolley in a corridor was the rather ruder description. Um, and it's very interesting. What we see throughout this is that Johnson and others thought, well, if we lock down again, the damage to the economy is going to be absolutely huge. You know, it's only those that actually are vulnerable that are really getting sick and dying. And yet, time and again, he, he, his mind was changed. You know, the second lockdown was a mistake. The third lock was lockdown was catastrophic. Um, yeah, just a rudderless government that was all over the place, that didn't really understand what it was doing. Um, and, of course, as we learn from the bounce-back loans and much else, um, you know, fraud running into so many billions of pounds. So it is an example of the British government at its very worst, albeit in difficult circumstances, and we understand that and we accept that. But you have to have some consistency of view to lead in a crisis. Uh, I think it reflects incredibly badly on the Tory party, incredibly badly on Boris Johnson, and I don't think we've really still fully understood the damage of it. I think there are psychological and societal changes that have been caused by those lockdowns uh, that, that we may never go back to. I mean, I, you know, it, it's remarkable. I mean, when I drive into London on a Monday, there's no one there. There's no one there. And Fridays are the same. So quite what that's doing to our productivity and much else is difficult to put a number on. So, yeah, pretty unseemly stuff. Real question is, will we learn any lessons from it? Well, the problem is it's going to go on for another year at least. Um, and will anybody be actually be held accountable? To which the answer, sadly, is no. The two things I've noted is what Lord Frost wrote about the lack of a cost-benefit analysis. And I never thought I'd say this, but it seems like they lacked an economist uh, in, in, in the discussions. And the other question is whether Rishi Sunak comes out of this looking uh, comparatively better. He seems to have been the <laughs> dissent on many of these issues. Yeah, he does actually come out better than everybody else. You know, he was the one worrying about what the effect on the economy was was going to be. He was the one that tried the Eat Out to Help Out initiative, but all the scientists went, ah, keep them locked in their houses. Um, and, 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 you know, instinctively, Rishi Sunak was a bit more Sweden or Florida um, than ultimately the rest of the government. No, this doesn't hurt Rishi Sunak. That's for sure. But Rishi Sunak doesn't cut through with the British public. Uh, it just doesn't cut through. And I, and I mean... You know, this this banning cigarettes for people born after 2009 and fiddling around with A-levels, I mean, these are not the priorities of the British people. It's farcical, you know. Um, he's like a sort of out-of-touch schoolmaster, you know, living in his own little world of what he thinks is really important. 
And I guess it's stuff that he's good at. And he's a clever bloke. And he's a nice bloke. He's a decent bloke. I mean, for somebody in politics, he's very decent. But he, he doesn't have the... Lead. So I don't think any potential benefit that accrues to him out of this inquiry, I don't think it really helps. And I think the recent by-elections show you that. Yeah, perhaps if he was a candidate rather than prime minister, it would have been more, more, more interesting. Yeah. Yeah. What about the second point about the lack of a cost-benefit analysis? Yeah, I mean, Frost was after that, of course, all the time. I mean, to be to be honest, it would have been hard to do one, wouldn't it? I mean, to do a cost-benefit analysis would have actually been about as accurate as Professor Neil Ferguson's modelling for how many millions would die. So I'm exaggerating a bit. but but So I think it would have been very difficult, Nick, anyway. How can you do... You know, you close everything down, you lock people indoors. You know, how can you anticipate whether they're going to start spending like Billio online? Uh, very, very difficult. But I think the thing that really gets me is I I can just about forgive them for the first lockdown. It's the subsequent lockdowns I can't forgive them for. When it was becoming obvious what the damage to small business, to industry was, uh, when it was becoming obvious that we were putting up the national debt, and in the end it was $400 billion that we added to the national debt, uh, that's the moment at which, rather rather than an appraisal of what might happen in the future, but some analysis of what had happened in the first lockdown, that's when it should have been done. And I think that's the point Frost really was trying to make. Yeah, it's the the inability to accept that it was a mistake and sort of the need to persist in order to, to avoid that. Speaking of a lack of cost-benefit analysis, we've also got some... Uh, some net zero issues to discuss. I've noticed that a lot of green tech stocks, green energy stocks, mm. are absolutely crashing as of the last few weeks. They've broken down below some pretty important support levels, uh, meaning new lows going back one or two years, depending on the particular stock. Uh, the ETFs, which is a group of those stocks, are much the same. Uh, what's going on in the green tech space? Uh, there's a realization that's hit with wind particularly, which of course is by far the biggest part of this. You know, The last government auction didn't have any bidders. And now the wind industry has come back to government to say, you must increase what you're paying us for the wind we generate by, are you sitting down, 70%. Yes, they want a 70% increase in what government pays them. So we're beginning to understand, at last, that the economics of this are non-existent without significant taxpayer subsidy. But Nigel, the wind is free. Uh -huh. Oh, I know, and it's endless, and it'll save the world. And yeah, we're beginning to learn that the only way you can do this is to lump more on people's electricity bills to pay the increased subsidy. That now, for the first time, becomes politically difficult. Because in the past, they've hidden it. There was a complete consensus that this was the right thing to do. There was, a, there was a lunatic about eight years ago called Farage. He was saying, look what you're doing to people. And he sort of looked at me as if, I mean, you know, is he from Mars? I mean, you know, and I was really banging on about this. I mean, literally 10 years ago. Do you realize how much you're paying for this? Now, if you were to lump on to electricity bills to meet the demands of the wind industry, you would have the Sun editorial, the Daily Mail editorial, 40 or 50 backbench conservative MPs, uh, one or two prominent leaders in, of, of, in, of industry, you know, you, you, you might get a Jim Ratcliffe and people like that, very, very difficult to do. So they're in a bit of a pickle over this. They really are in a bit of a pickle. And it's becoming obvious to all. And of course, in those circumstances, markets react. And I mean, come on, 
you know, we have been calling this for a long, long time. We've been, we've been saying that it's nonsense for a long, long time. Um, but they're determined to continue. I don't know how they're going to find a way through it, but they will try. Sorry to interrupt, but if you're enjoying this content, you can get it every single day. Just click the link in the description or go to fortuneandfreedom.com. Get a daily email from our team of experts. Thank you. It seems to me that this 70% jump that you're referring to is just the beginning. Uh, I actually should mention, because it's the same in the US with some US projects, um, the government refused to increase prices by a similar amount, actually, and the court said governments don't need to increase them. And as a result, uh, a wind farm developer decided to walk away from the project and actually pay a significant penalty for doing so. So this isn't just a UK issue. No. But it still strikes me that this is just the beginning of several costs that weren't considered in the, so the the initial stages of developing wind farms, such as the cost of transmission, such as the cost of energy storage. And those subsequent shocks are still yet to come. They're not factored into that 70% figure. So this could still get a lot worse. Well, it could. I mean, you know, there is still this blind assumption that's been around since, well, I first heard it in the year 2000. Um, there is still this crackpot assumption that the storage of electricity produced by wind is a given. It's not. We're still nowhere near anything. The other theory knocking about, which again, this one sounds quite good, is that you use the excess wind on the days when you don't need all of it to produce hydrogen. And there's a lot of money and research, both public and private, going into that. But we haven't overcome the problem of the density. You, you, you know, the hydrogen to, to run a car, you're going to need a sort of balloon on the top of it. Um, we, haven't, I, we haven't overcome the problem that if you densify hydrogen, it's highly explosive. Now, Nick, you know, if we could find that solution, wind would start to look very different. But we're nowhere near any of this. We're literally nowhere near any of this. You're focusing on the technology. To me, the issue is that the wind farm developers producing that energy don't bear those costs directly. And so there's this disconnect between what wind would actually cost the the economy as a whole or the energy system as a whole versus what sort of wind developers are focusing on when they say this is the cost of producing wind energy. Now, you make a fair point. Um, And of course, we still have the ridiculous situation where we pay them not to produce at times, at time. I mean, that actually, that racket is one that hasn't yet been fully exposed in the press. I'm, I'm inspired to go hard on it very, 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 very shortly. I remember you doing so in the past. Um, my last question on this is, aren't we setting ourselves up for a significant energy shortage? The reason I ask that is that we're projected to produce all this wind and solar energy, and recent developments are suggesting that we're not going to actually be able to do that given all these failed wind auctions and, and issues around the world. Doesn't that leave us with a complete shortage? Well, it certainly does. If we're going to go, I mean, if eighty percent of new cars are going to be EVs by twenty thirty, that's still the target. I mean, don't you know? Don't, don't be taken in by some of what the government said. Eighty percent is still the target. Um, we're going to need to produce, even to meet that, about four times the electricity we're currently producing. I mean, it's laughable. It's absolutely laughable. Um, Goodness knows what they're going to conclude in the end, but it is laughable. Yeah, it seems like there's a reckoning building. Um, last but not least, I want to ask you about this idea of Ukraine fatigue. Uh, Georgia Maloney was was caught out uh, by this in a, a fake interview with some some Russian um, comedians or, or pranksters. Yeah. 
Um, but I think it got to a real question of whether the world is sort of thinking about a way out of Ukraine and what that means for energy markets, especially, you know, winter is coming, as they say. What do you know is that we're not talking about Ukraine at all, are we? Because we're so entirely focused on the actions in, in Israel and Gaza, uh, which is understandable um, at one level. Um, but there is certainly a weakening of support for Ukraine in the West. I don't think there's any doubt about that. Um, I don't think there's any doubt about that. Uh, how much Putin puts the squeeze on this winter? I mean, he still he still has some enormously powerful cards to play, but it could be, it could be that he might be happy just to continue with his military operations, not say too much, not squeeze energy because no one's watching. Do you see what I mean? No one's watching, but that's still the risk. But that is still the inflation risk is that we get a price energy shock. But it is interesting that the central banks have stopped raising rates. It is interesting that even food inflation has begun to stabilize. And whilst inflation is going to be persistent, unless we get that energy shock, it looks like it's going to be reasonably tolerable and that we might have topped out the interest rate cycle for this moment in time. And Nick, that makes me wonder, you know, ever since we launched this, you know, go back a couple of years, We've urged everybody not to hold bonds. We've been absolutely right to urge people not to hold bonds. It's one of the reasons why the pension industry has so hopelessly underperformed, because the FCA and the regulators forced them to hold huge quantities of bonds. So that was one thing we really have, probably the best, the best piece of advice we gave people, was steer clear of bonds. But I wonder with, to repeat, the sort of topping out of the interest rate cycle, the stabilization to a degree of inflation, I do begin to wonder whether bonds are really now looking quite oversold. Well, thank you for watching, and I hope you agree it's never been more important to take control of your own money, your own financial situation. We do a daily free email, a fortune and freedom daily email with lots of knowledge, lots of insight. It's a very useful way of protecting yourself for the future. So please click the link in the description or go to fortuneandfreedom.com and get my daily email.